let's get started. It's my pleasure to welcome you all to today's Region 4 Project Echo session from the Emory University Serious Communicable Diseases Program, run in conjunction with the Southern Regional Disaster Response System and the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. My name is Gavin Harris. I'm an infectious diseases and critical care physician here at Emory University, and I will be your moderator for today. Before we begin, please know that we will be recording this session and your data, while used for informative purposes, will be kept confidential. Now, for those unfamiliar, ECHO is an acronym standing for Extension for Community Healthcare Outcomes founded by the University of New Mexico. It's designed to disseminate and amplify best practices in a collaborative and interactive manner. And if you are interested in participating in future sessions, please reach out to us. Details will be at the end and on our website. As always, if there are any issues during the webinar, please send us an email or type in the chat. If you would like to ask a question during the session, please type it into the Q&A feature. We will do our best to answer questions in real time and we'll discuss as many questions live as we are able. If we do not get to all questions, we will post a recap addressing those topics on our website when the recordings of this session is available as a podcast next week. Now, these sessions are accredited for continuing education credits by the AMA and the ANCC. Credit can be obtained for attendance upon completion of a survey at the end of this session. The presenters and the planners of this session have no financial conflicts of interest with ineligible companies to disclose. And here's today's agenda. As always, we will start with the Region 4 SITREP. This will be followed by our case and didactic presentations with a special public health perspective. And after this, we will have time for moderated Q&A. And now it's my honor to introduce our guest for today. First, I would like to welcome Dr. Pragna Patel. Dr. Patel is the Chief Medical Officer of the Centers for Disease Control, Coronavirus, and Other Respiratory Viruses Division, a captain in the U.S. Public Health Service, and an adjunct professor of medicine here at Emory. She's also an epidemiologist with over 25 years of experience, has made numerous contributions uh, to the management and control of HIV and COVID-19, and has co-authored over 120 manuscripts and book chapters. Next, I'd like to welcome back Dr. Tim Uyeki, Chief Medical Officer of the CDC's Influenza Division. Dr. Uyeki has worked on all aspects of the control of influenza viruses throughout the world since 1998, as well as other emerging viral infections, and has appeared on our program several times. I'd also like to welcome back Dr. David Greenkey, Assistant Professor of Medicine here at Emory in Pediatric Emergency Medicine at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Dr. Greenkey is an expert in global pediatric preparedness, a principal investigator for the Gulf 7 Pediatric Disaster Network and site co-investigator for the Regional Emerging Special Pathogens Treatment Centers here at Emory. Lastly, I'd also like to welcome back Dr. John Horton, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Clinical Operations Director of the Division of Obstetrics and Gynecology here at Emory. Dr. Horton has been a part of the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center since inception in 2015 and has extensive experience in providing clinical support and expertise surrounding infectious diseases in the care of pregnant people and those in labor. Dr. Horton has also been a panelist on our program several times. Welcome to you all. Now to place this session in context, the Emory University Serious Communicable Diseases Program in conjunction with the SRDRS puts together situation reports on special pathogens of concern for our region, HHS Region 4. These sit reps are typically published on our website, social media channels, Emory Department of Medicine YouTube channel, and listservs. Here is the current HHS Region 4 special pathogens sit rep. 
First, the Lassa fever outbreak in Nigeria continues to abate. As of the 17th of September, there have been 1,068 confirmed cases with 181 deaths. This equates to a case fatality rate of 16.9%, which continues to decrease. In neighboring Benin, since last month, there have been no new cases reported, with confirmed counts holding at seven with two deaths. Next, to India, where in the south, the Kerala Health Department since September 11th has confirmed six cases of Nipah virus with two deaths. While all testing on local bats, droppings, and half-eaten fruit from the village where the index patient was located has been negative, all six patients were close contacts of one another, pointing to not only evidence of infection through consumption of contaminated raw date palm sap, but also possible human-to-human -human transmission. Next, CCHF spread by hyaloma ticks and contact with domesticated animals and carries a case fatality rate between 30 and 50% continues to spread throughout the Middle East, Africa, and Eastern Europe. As noted before, we expect the peak of CCHF to be between April and October in the Northern Hemisphere, as these are the warmest months and likely the most common times for population movements and animal slaughter. As of October 17th, since the start of this year, the greatest number of cases has been reported from Afghanistan, with over 950 confirmed cases and 96 deaths, 545 confirmed cases and 70 deaths in Iraq, and 60 cases in Iran with three fatalities, as well as numerous other cases throughout countries in Asia and Eastern Europe. It's likely as well that these numbers here are an undercount. Lastly, to Southeast Asia, where on October 5th, two human cases of H5N1 have been confirmed in Cambodia, one fatal in a two-year-old girl and another non-fatal case in a 50-year-old man. While these were unconnected cases from different provinces, poultry deaths were reported in close proximity to their homes. Additionally, genetic sequencing has revealed that the virus that infected both patients is extremely similar to the endemic clade that has been circulating in the region for at least a decade. It's different than the 2344B clade that is currently circulating widely in mammals throughout the world. And lastly, there have been no reports of other suspected or confirmed patients with special pathogens of concern in Region 4 at this time. For more resources, visit us on the web at scdu.emory.edu. And now, as always, before we delve into the main topic at hand, I wanted to first pose some interactive poll questions to the audience to gaze, gauge excuse me, our base comfort level with this topic. The first question, what is your level of awareness of the current state of res uh, circulating respiratory viruses in the U.S. on a scale of not at all aware to extremely aware? And two, how confident do you feel in utilizing currently available medical countermeasures for RSV and influenza on a scale of not at all confident to completely confident? If the audience could please vote now. All right, if we could quickly get the results of those polls up on the screen, please. So in terms of our first question, it seems we have a pretty significant spread from not at all aware to extremely aware, though it's certain most uh, people in the audience have at least some awareness of the current state. And then in terms of confidence level in utilizing currently available medical countermeasures, we have also a significant spread from not at all confident to completely confident. So I hope that our audience is able to take away some important tips from, uh, from our uh, session here. And as always, our presenters have a lot of work cut out for them. So with that, let's begin. And I will now turn it over to Dr. Patel. 
Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Uh, bear with me for a minute while I share my screen. Um, can everyone see that? We can. Uh, wait, not just quite yet. Not quite yet. Hang on one second. Let me do that well, again. While you're doing that, I just wanted to correct something that I just mentioned uh, in the situation report. I've been informed that unfortunately both H5N1 case patients in Cambodia last week did unfortunately pass away. So I did want to correct that and thank you to Dr. Yaki for that update. Uh, Dr. Patel, we can see your screen at this time. So with that, I am going to mute my microphone. Great, thank you so much. So it's a pleasure to be here today and I'm gonna to talk to you about the new RSV vaccines for older adults and give you some general information um, and clinical guidance. But uh, first, let's start with the case. So you have a 77-year-old male who presents with fever, mild congestion, cough, and wheezing for three days. He has noted some mild dyspnea and is not sleeping well, lives in a skilled nursing facility where no one else has reported being sick recently with similar symptoms. He's a former smoker. He quit eight years ago, drinks occasionally, and lives a pretty sedentary lifestyle and is obese. He is a widower, widower, has two children, five grandchildren who visit him frequently, and his past medical history is significant for asthma, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia. Um, he takes medications, fluticasone salmeterol for his asthma, hydrochlorothiazide for his hypertension, lisinopril for his hypertension, and uh, atorvastatin for his hyperlipidemia, and then he uses albuterol as needed and has been using it consistently over the last two days, taking Tylenol for his fever, and his doctor has started him on a short course of uh, prednisone for his um, wheezing. Temperature, low-grade fever, 101. Blood pressure is 145 over 87. Respiratory rate, 18. Pulse is 88. But he's uh, got a pulse ox of 95% on room air. And he tested negative for influenza and SARS-CoV-2 on day two of his illness. So one point I would like to make about this case is that for SARS-CoV-2, um, you know, if you're using an antigen test and you have a high uh, clinical suspicion for SARS-CoV-2, we do recommend that you test again 48 hours later uh, the IDSA guidelines say two tests are enough. CDC guidance says three tests are enough. Um, but in this case, this patient likely has um, RSV. And we can just go over some of the common um, uh, some of the details about RSV. It's a very common respiratory virus. Um, it causes a mild cold-like symptoms um, in most people. However, in older adults, they can have more severe disease. And I'm not sure if you all have, have seen this new MMWR that CDC put out um, just a couple of weeks ago where we looked at severity of disease um, in older adults of RSV compared to influenza and COVID-19. And in these vulnerable adults, RSV actually can cause more severe disease. And unfortunately, we don't have treatments for RSV. Um, we tend to get seasonal epidemics, and I'm not going to go through um, a lot of the, um, the epidemiology of all three viruses in detail, but we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. And 
uh, it's spread through respiratory droplets and, con and direct contact. So it's um, something that's easily spread, particularly in a skilled nursing facility. And so this is a really nice slide that shows what has been going on with um, RSV transmission following the introduction of SARS-CoV-2. So I wanna just draw your attention to the red and yellow lines, because those are basically um, the epidemic curves for RSV after the introduction of SARS-CoV-2. And you may have remembered that last year, um, we saw a pretty significant peak in RSV and we saw it earlier um, in the year than we normally see. The blue lines are what we normally see pre-pandemic. We see these peaks um, well into the winter months, but last year we were seeing a, a peak in October. And then in the year prior, uh, even though we didn't have as large of a peak, we were seeing positivity in the summer months. And so there does seem to be changes in the seasonality of RSV since um, SARS-CoV-2 uh, has, has been introduced. The annual burden among adults age 65 and older, we tend to see approximately 900,000 to 1.4 million medical encounters, 60,000 to 160,000 hospitalizations, and 6,000 to 10,000 deaths. And I would imagine that these numbers might be a bit um, underestimate, underestimated because I'm not sure how routinely we're testing for SARS-CoV-2, partly because we don't you know, have any treatments currently. So the clinical presentation in adults, usually symptoms are mild, runny nose, sore throat, cough, headache, fatigue, and fever. These are all nonspecific symptoms that we see with a number of other respiratory viruses but older adults are at increased risk of becoming severely ill. And this includes lower respiratory tract infections and exacerbation of existing conditions. As you saw in our patient, his asthma was exacerbated by having RSV. So there are some underlying medical conditions that are associated with increased risk of severe RSV. Um, and these include lung disease, cardiovascular disease, moderate to severe immune compromise. These are patients that are either on chemotherapeutic agents, have uncontrolled HIV, um, and have certain cancers like leukemia, diabetes, neurologic and neuromuscular conditions, kidney disorders, liver disorders, hematologic disorders. And then there are other conditions that might increase risk. And those are residents in a nursing home or long-term care facility, partly because of just the transmission of RSV is so easy in these types of facilities. Um, we're seeing people who are frail might be at increased risk and there's no consensus definition of frailty, but the freed frailty phenotype defines frailty as three or more of the following, unintentional weight loss, 10 pounds in the past year, self-reported exhaustion, weakness, slow walking, and low physical activity. And then of course, advanced age, and the risk increases as age increases, as we see with SARS-CoV-2. So just wanted to end with a self-knowledge check. Which of the following statements about RSV clinical symptoms in older adults is false? A, RSV only causes upper respiratory symptoms like runny nose and sore throat. B, SARS-CoV-2, no, I'm sorry, RSV 
can cause lower respiratory tract infections like pneumonia. RSV can cause exacerbations or flares of chronic uh, conditions. And clinical symptoms are nonspecific and overlap with symptoms of other respiratory infections. So the correct answer is A. Um, although RSV infection in most adults typically, typically occurs, causes a mild upper respiratory tract infection, older adults are at increased risk of severe illness compared with younger adults. And severe illness from RSV can include lower respiratory tract infection like pneumonia or exacerbation of existing chronic conditions like congestive heart failure or COPD. So just wanted to move into our recommendations and clinical guidance for use of RSV vaccination um, in adults. Uh, recently, the ACIP and CDC recommended that adults age 60 years and older may receive a single dose of RSV vaccine using shared clinical decision-making. We've been getting a lot of questions about what we mean uh, by shared clinical decision-making. And you know this is very different from a universal vaccination recommendation or a risk-based uh, recommendation, partly because we really wanted to encourage patients to have conversations with their family and their healthcare providers to understand their risk for RSV um, before getting the vaccination. And part, part of the reason was we had uh, limited uh, safety data at the time that we made the, these recommendations. And we thought it would be good to have a clinician weigh in on whether uh, a, a patient based on their um, medical history and their social situation needed the vaccine. So shared clinical decision-making, there's no default decision to vaccinate, um, and that's really important. Recommendations are individually based and informed by a decision process between the healthcare provider and the patient. Uh, this is uh, based on the best available evidence that we have currently, um, and the patient's risk for disease, characteristics, values, their preferences. Um, we think that it's important to have a clinical provider involved to uh, bring their perspective um, and also wanted to take into consideration the characteristics of the vaccine. We've been getting a lot of uh, questions about co-administration and uh, co-administration is acceptable with all other adult vaccines. And if you're only going to, going to see a patient once during the respiratory season, we would recommend that you consider uh, co-administering RSV, influenza, and, and the COVID vaccine. Um, if the vaccines are not administered on the same day and the patient is willing to come back, there is no required interval between vaccines. So we do have some data on the immunogenicity of co-administration of RSV vaccines with other vaccines. Um, <clears throat> generally, co-administration of, uh, of RSV with seasonal influenza met the non-inferiority criteria for immunogenicity. And you'll see that there's a link um, at the bottom of the page to um, some of those data. Uh, however, RSV and influenza antibody titers were generally somewhat lower with co-administration, but the clinical significance of this is unknown. So we need additional studies, and we also need additional studies on immunogenicity of co-administration of 
adults, RSV with other adult vaccines, and those studies are in process. So something to consider when you're deciding when to give RSV vaccination to your adult patients. And I'm just uh, providing some valuable resources here for you to look over at your leisure. And I do wanna take a minute to acknowledge the, the ACIP working group um, that worked on the RSV recommendations for adults and particularly wanted to recognize Michael Melger and Amadea Britton um, who actually provided me with many of these slides. Thank you. Thank you very much. Dr. Patel for that excellent presentation. And as a reminder to the audience, we will be providing resources following this session, especially next week. And if anyone has questions that they would like to ask during the session, please do not hesitate to type in the Q&A feature or the chat. With that, uh, we next have Dr. Tim Uyeki, also from CDC. Uh, Dr. Yucky, I think you are still muted, but we can see your slides. Sorry, um, you can see my slides okay. Great. Thanks for the opportunity to speak about seasonal influenza prevention, testing, and treatment. I have no disclosures to report. Um, what I'm going to try to do is cover recent influenza activity in the U.S., influenza disease burden, talk about prevention with influenza vaccines, clinical characteristics, and clinical management, including testing and antiviral treatment. So what this shows is um, that influenza activity in the U.S. is rather low right now. That doesn't mean it's zero. We have had hospitalizations. We have had some deaths. And we believe that influenza activity is only going to increase in the coming weeks to months, but it's low nationally right now. Now, last season, we had a um, somewhat of an early season, at least peaking nationally uh, before the new year, and was predominated by influenza A, H3N2 viruses. And typically, those kinds of seasons uh, are more severe than um, in seasons, seasonal epidemics that are predominated by other influenza A viruses. So we looked towards the Southern Hemisphere, and sometimes that helps inform us about what might be happening in the Northern Hemisphere season to come. And what we see uh, most recently in the Southern Hemisphere is that um, the season was generally predominated by influenza A, H1N1, PDMO9 viruses. There were influenza B viruses also circulating. Um, and some countries, including recently, have also had influenza A, H3N2 viruses circulating. So this kind of suggests that we might be having um, a season that's not gonna be H3N2 predominated, but H1N1 PDMO9 viruses, but uh, it's still too early to tell. Now, in terms of estimated influenza disease burden, uh, similar to what um, Dr. Patel presented for RSV, there's a wide range. We have sometimes uh, milder seasonal influenza epidemics, and we have more uh, severe seasonal uh, influenza epidemics. So typically over a 10-year period, we have a range of 12,000 to 52,000 deaths, 140,000 to 710,000 uh, influenza-associated hospitalizations, and a wide range of about 9 million to 41 million estimated illnesses. And if we look at um, preliminary estimates from last season, it was um, you know, moderate season. Um, we had 
um, you know, illnesses, medical visits, hospitalizations, and deaths all fitting within the, the range of what we typically see during seasonal influenza epidemics in the US. There's a huge number of different influenza vaccines that are available, uh, including inactivated, live attenuated, um, but also um, for older adults, uh, different antigen containing. So we have high dose for 65 and older. We have recombinant vaccines for 18 years and older. Um, recombinant vaccines have three times the antigen content of standard dose vaccines. Um, uh, high dose have four times the antigen content of standard dose vaccines. And we also have adjuvanted vaccines for people 65 and older. Um, so m the time for annual influenza vaccination of all persons six months and older in the US is right now. Um, but if you can't get vaccinated during October, we do recommend influenza vaccination as long as influenza viruses are circulating in the community. All influenza vaccines for this season are quadrivalent. And just a reminder, um, over the last few years, there's been a preferential recommendation for people aged 65 years and older for high dose recombinant or adjuvanted vaccine. Now, if those vaccines are not available, then certainly standard dose inactivated vaccine for people 65 years and older is better than a no vaccination. Um, one thing that is new for this season is the ACIP recommends that all persons six months and older who have an egg allergy should be vaccinated. There's no additional safety measures. All vaccines should be administered in settings in which personnel and equipment needed for rapid recognition and treatment of acute hypersensitivity reactions are available. Um, although people who have had severe allergic reactions to either egg-based or cell culture-based vaccine or recombinant vaccine or components of those vaccines, um, th those are a contraindication to that specific vaccine. Now, uh, Dr. Patel mentioned co-administration. I'll just echo what she said, that co-administration of vaccines in general is considered best practice if eligibility and timing uh, criteria are met co-administration of COVID-19 vaccine and influenza vaccine is recommended. Um, we look to the Southern hemisphere. Sometimes those data can inform us about what might be happening in terms of influenza vaccine effectiveness uh, for the coming season, not necessarily, but it could give us some hints. So here's some preliminary data published from uh, uh, a study of influenza vaccine effectiveness in five countries in South America. And the adjusted interim uh, influenza vaccine effectiveness against hospitalization for severe acute respiratory infection with influenza viruses was about 52%. And vaccine effectiveness was much higher among young children. Typically, the, it was defined differently in the different countries, but these were children generally less than six years of age, so about 70%. And then, uh, unfortunately, for older adults, as we know, uh, influenza vaccine effectiveness is not as high typically in older adults, uh, but it was about 38% um, among older adults. And this was in the setting, again, as I mentioned, the predominantly influenza AH1N1 PDML9 virus circulation. So um, it's a suggestion um, that might be, you know, reasonable influenza vaccine effectiveness against more severe disease requiring hospitalization, but we'll see um, what, what happens in the US this season. So just to say uh, a few things about uh, the presentation of uncomplicated influenza virus infection, um, you know, it's typically the abrupt onset of um, acute respiratory symptoms 
uh, upper respiratory tract symptoms as well as systemic signs and symptoms. Um, not everyone has a fever with influenza, um, but some people do. There are also neuromuscular, gastrointestinal uh, symptoms and pulmonary symptoms. But just to say that gastrointestinal symptoms such as abdominal pain, vomiting, and diarrhea are much more common with uh, young children and particularly with influenza B. And we don't see gastrointestinal um, symptoms so much with influenza in uh, adults. And just to show at the bottom, there's great overlap uh, with the signs and symptoms of uncomplicated influenza and uncomplicated COVID-19, as well as what Dr. Patel talked about with um, mild RSV infection. But there are a wide range of complications associated with influenza, including moderate complications such as otitis media in young children, sinus infections, and exacerbation of underlying chronic disease that doesn't necessarily result in severe disease. However, um, there are many people that, uh, in, in whom influenza can trigger a much worsening of their chronic underlying comorbidities, uh, resulting in severe disease and hospital admission. The most common complications are respiratory. Um, influenza can cause a, a wide range of upper and lower respiratory tract complications. Most common is pneumonia, uh, both uh, viral pneumonia as well as community-acquired um, bacterial co-infection. Cardiac complications include myocarditis and pericarditis, but also may precipitate myocardial infarction in people with coronary artery disease, a wide range of neurologic complications, um, all the way from simple febrile seizures in, in young children, all, all the way to um, encephalopathy, encephalitis, and uh, fulminant uh, acute necrotizing encephalitis and, and uh, uh, sudden death. Um, but um, influenza can also um, uh, precipitate strokes in people with underlying cerebral vascular disease. Um, bacterial co-infection, the most common community-acquired uh, bacteria that we see uh, typically with secondary bacterial pneumonia are Staph aureus, both MSSA as well as MRSA, um, and pneumococcus as well as group A strep. Um, musculoskeletal complications include myositis, and the worst would be rhabdomyolysis <coughs> precipitating renal failure. Uh, we do see multi-organ failure in critically ill influenza patients. Um, not just respiratory, but also renal failure and septic shock. And don't forget healthcare uh, associated uh, or acquired infections, uh, both bacterial fungal and especially those who are ventilated for prolonged periods. Um, just to highlight groups at increased risk for inf influenza complications and severe illness, there's great overlap with what Dr. Patel mentioned for complications of RSV, but also for complications of COVID-19. So what we see for influenza is the very young and the very old. So children less than two years of age and people 65 years and older, and the older you get, and the greater the risk of more severe disease. And then people with chronic underlying medical problems, people who are immunocompromised, people with extreme obesity, children and adolescents who are receiving aspirin or salicylate containing medications, because if they have influenza, they might be at risk for Rye syndrome, particularly, um, um, that, that's why, you know, for most people, um, you should avoid, particularly children, avoid salicylate uh, containing medications. Um, and th those who are chronically on uh, aspirin or salicylate uh, medications, um, 
need to be managed a, a bit different if they have influenza. So residents of nursing homes and other long-term care facilities and congregate facilities, such as what Dr. Patel mentioned, pregnant persons and people up to two weeks postpartum, and then people from certain racial and ethnic minority groups, including non-Hispanic, Black, Hispanic, or Latino American, Indian, or Alaska Native persons. There are a variety of influenza tests available in clinical settings. They range from rapid antigen tests that have, um, I would say, at best, moderate sensitivity, um, but they can uh, yield a, a quick result. There are also multiplex antigen tests that can yield a quick result for influenza A and B and SARS-CoV-2. And then there are the, the rapid molecular assays that can yield a test within 30 minutes, uh, which can be useful in clinical settings with high, moderately high sensitivity, uh, up to high sensitivity. And there are also multiplex assays that can detect influenza A, B, SARS-CoV-2, and RSV. And then there are molecular assays uh, for influenza, as well as multiplex assays that can detect a, a wide variety of uh, respiratory viral targets and some bacterial targets as well that may take more than 60 minutes and several hours to yield a result. So all of these tests available in clinical settings have generally high specificity, but they differ by time to yield results, what information is available, and actually sensitivity with the antigen tests having the lowest sensitivity. Now, what tests are recommended? The Infectious Diseases Society of America Influenza Clinical Practice Guidelines published in Clinical Infectious Diseases in 2009 recommends rapid influenza molecular assays over rapid influenza antigen tests in outpatients. And then for hospitalized patients, molecular assays, including RT-PCR or other influenza molecular assays are recommended. Um, IDSA does not recommend the use of rapid antigen detection tests unless molecular assays for influenza are not available. I just wanna highlight in the box at the bottom don't order viral culture for initial or primary diagnosis of influenza. It takes too long. It's important for public health purposes, but will not yield uh, a, a timely results to inform clinical management. And do not order serology for influenza. There are commercial laboratories that do offer influenza serology on an acute serum specimen. Don't order that. You cannot interpret influenza um, antibody results on a single serum specimen. You need paired acute and convalescent sera. Uh, and then serology needs to be done at a public health lab or a specialized laboratory. So it's important for public health investigations, for vaccine studies, but it's not going to be um, useful at all for clinical management of a patient. Um, so antivirals for treatment of influenza. There are four FDA-approved antivirals. These include three neuraminidase inhibitors, oseltamivir, zanamivir, and paramivir. They are all available um, in different routes of administration, uh, different dosing, and um, different age approvals and different contraindications. They all have been um, have shown efficacy in randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials for the uh, early initiation of treatment within 36 to 48 hours of uncomplicated influenza. And these are mild disease outcomes. Um, the fourth drug is baloxivir. It is in the class called cap-dependent endonuclease inhibitor it is a single dose, oral dose. And so at the, uh, I would just call to your attention that all of these drugs 
um, do have different age approvals that are recommended and different routes of administration, different dosing. And I just highlighted oseltamivir and biloxivir because these are oral drugs and these are more widely used. So for antiviral treatment, the focus is on prompt treatment of persons with severe disease and those at increased risk of influenza complications. So antiviral treatment is recommended and has the greatest clinical benefit when started as soon as possible for patients with confirmed or suspected influenza who are hospitalized. And that includes without waiting for testing results. We do recommend oral oseltamivir, can also be delivered enterically via uh, oral gastric or nasogastric tube to critically ill uh, intubated patients. Um, for outpatients with complicated or progressive illness of any duration who do not require hospitalization, we do recommend oral oseltamivir. And then outpatients who are at high risk for influenza complications, we recommend uh, oral oseltamivir or oral biloxivir. And so the recommendations for hospitalized patients, there are actually no uh, placebo-controlled uh, randomized controlled trials. What we do have data for many, many observational studies, and they do all suggest uh, benefit of oseltamivir treatment as soon as possible once the patient is, hospital, is admitted to hospital. So patients who are not high risk, it's clinical judgment whether or not um, you wanna treat them if they present within 48 hours after illness onset, there's clearly is clinical benefit, so that could be done. Um, so I just want to call to your attention the results of some meta-analyses. Um, these are powered for mild disease outcomes, both in children and adults. And these have shown statistically significant benefit versus placebo in reducing the duration of influenza illness, reducing some moderate complications, the risk of otitis media by a third, uh, reducing the risk in adults uh, of, uh, by about 44% of the risk of lower respiratory tract complications occurring more than 48 hours um, after treatment requiring antibiotics. But I just wanna call to your attention a recent publication that was in JAMA Internal Medicine published in June. It was a pooled meta-analysis of 15 RCTs that were done in outpatients that were actually powered for mild disease outcomes. None of these RCTs that were included were powered for severe outcomes such as hospitalizations. The authors did not find any association between oseltamivir treatment and risk of hospital uh, admission. Uh, but in my opinion, this analysis was underpowered and you need tens of thousands of patients actually to, to actually um, uh, sufficiently assess this question of whether um, oseltamivir treatment in outpatients reduces the risk of severe influenza. And that's because the risk overall, even in high-risk people for, um, progressing to severe disease is very low. And so that, in my opinion, was an inconclusive meta-analysis, but it's, it's gotten some attention. So influenza clinical management, other than implementing infection prevention control measures, uh, which are standard and droplet precautions, and starting antiviral treatment with oseltamivir as soon as possible is really supportive care of complications, including secondary bacterial co-infection, respiratory failure, ARDS, potential for renal failure, sepsis, uh, et cetera. And I'll just say a huge gap we have is therapeutic management of um, people with severe influenza in, in the hospitals. But I'll just say that in progress, there are some adaptive clinical trial platforms um, that came to prominence during the COVID-19 pandemic for trials of therapeutics, interventions, 
in severe COVID-19 patients. And this is the remap cap platform and also the recovery platform in the UK. So both of these platforms are studying antivirals in hospitalized influenza patients. And um, mostly uh, remap cap is studying different immunomodulators for severe influenza, which include corticosteroids, but also include immunomodulators such as the IL-6 receptor blocker tocilizumab, as well as the Janus kinase inhibitor baricitinib. It may take a few years um, to yield data, but at least these studies are in progress. And you know, right now we, we really have a huge gap in managing severe influenza, but there's hope in the future. So I'll just conclude with some key points to say that influenza vaccination is recommended now for all people aged six months in the US and older. Um, if you can't get vaccinated during October, you get vaccinated um, as long as influenza viruses are circulating. We have low influenza activity in the US right now, so there's time to get influenza vaccination. Influenza testing can guide clinical management when there is substantial co-circulation of other respiratory viruses, such as RSV, as Dr. Patel talked about, as well as SARS-CoV-2, as well as other respiratory viruses. An antiviral treatment of influenza is recommended as soon as possible for outpatients at increased risk for complications and for hospitalized patients. So I'll just stop there. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Yucky, and thank you so much, Dr. Patel, for those excellent overviews of medical countermeasures and the epidemiologic situations. I did now want to bring in some of our other panelists, Dr. David Greenkey and Dr. John Patrick Horton, um, to talk a little bit about or give us some perspective on some of our special populations that we think about. So I'm going to start with Dr. Greenkey, who's one of our pediatric emergency physicians here at Emory. And Dr. Greenkey, I wanted to get your perspective a bit on what you're seeing uh, on the ground, perhaps, with uh, you know, the pediatric population, especially in terms of RSV. There have been a lot of questions surrounding this, especially with utilization of the new monoclonal antibodies and also some management. So before we jump to some of those specifics, I'd just love to get your perspective on what you're seeing. Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me here. It's great to be here. You know, in short, we're getting slammed. Uh, we're getting absolutely slammed. Uh, in the emergency departments, um, certainly in Atlanta and, and uh, from what I understand across the country. It's RSV, but it's also all the respiratory bugs. And we honestly rarely test for which one it is. Uh, I shouldn't say rarely. We, we often don't test um, because it doesn't change our management um, most of the time. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about treating influenza, uh, when to treat and, and such. And uh, I would say that for us, even for the younger children, we rarely do treat just because um, number one, we're finding them a few days into the illness. Number two, the illness, the treatment is not super efficacious and the side effects are more symptoms that you get with the flu. So we end up not treating a lot, but, but yeah, the, the sort of is we're very busy. We're uh, we do see a lot of worried well. And so it's really important to uh, continue to stress to, um, parents and, and community pediatricians to really uh, go over what re what requires referral to the emergency departments and what does not. Um, and But we're also seeing a lot of borders in the ED because the hospitals are full. So we are seeing a lot of sick kids that do warrant hospitalization. Thank you. Sorry, I was muted there for a second. In terms of specific management, um, there have been some questions about the utility 
uh, in kids of using steroids or beta agonists, you know, nebulizers in the treatment of RSV. Can you speak a little to that? I can 100% speak to that. Um, don't do it. <laughs> um, 99% of the time, do not do it. Why don't you do it? Well, uh, because for the vast majority of children, it has no efficacy. It does nothing. This has been very, very well studied. It's one of the most studied things in pediatrics. And uh, when you're giving a child, for example, let's let's give a quick example. A nine-month-old comes in with respiratory distress, uh, scattered course wheezes, uh, and, and you, you diagnose the child with bronchiolitis. Again, it doesn't matter if it's RSV or whatever bug it is. Um, if you give that kid a, a, a treatment with albuterol, and we already know it's not working for the vast majority of these children. Well, what you're doing is you're you're exposing that kid to the harm harmful side effects of albuterol only. So you're increasing that kid's heart rate. You're preventing that kid from sleeping well. Um, you're making the kid more irritable and potentially making them even look worse from a respiratory status. Their heart rate goes up. They breathe faster and harder. So you're making the child worse by giving a treatment that the child doesn't need. Uh, same goes with steroids. Uh, there is a caveat to that that is not well studied or vetted out yet. There is probably a small, small subgroup of children that are albuterol responders under the age of two. These children have usually a strong, strong family history of asthma, a strong history of ATP. Um, and so in those children, in specific scenarios, it's, uh, it is appropriate at times to trial a treatment and see if it works. And if you, if you get a good response, then you can go down that route. But again, that's, that's really the exception, not the rule. Excellent points. Thank you so much for that. Dr. Horton, I just wanted to uh, to turn to you for a moment. I know we've had several questions come in as well regarding the population of, of pregnant people and those who might be in labor. And I was just wondering if you could provide a quick perspective from your standpoint on RSV, uh, the new medical countermeasures that we have for it, as well as what you are seeing. You know, it's been first to give incredible credit to the actual pharmaceuticals themselves, as well as of seeking to study pregnancy. Um, that's been one of our biggest barriers is actually getting studies off the ground with uh, including pregnant women. Um, in this case, also GlaxoSmithKline has a vaccine um, ended. They actually uh, stopped their pregnancy uh, studies, citing just further analysis on safety measures. And so the current recommendations is for the single Abrisva, the uh, Pfizer vaccine, uh, between 32 and 36 weeks. Now, the, a lot of the news that came out around this was concerns about preterm labor. And that was actually one of the questions that was asked. And it's a really good one because there was the, the concern that was raised was that there was a noted difference, like the numerical difference between preterm labor between the you know approximately 3,600 uh, that received the vaccine pregnant patients and the 3,600 that did not, the difference was 5.7 uh, percent had a preterm labor rate, not that far actually off of um, normal uh, baseline versus 4.7 in the placebo group. This is not statistically significant, and so, but it was something that was noted. It was talked about a lot, and so when both Pfizer as a company and FDA reached in a sort of a, a sort of an agreement to, to put this out on the market, that it, that was a big talking point. And that's why giving it between 32 and 36 weeks, we time a lot of vaccinations that we give in pregnancy with when will they have an effect, but have the least effect on the birthing parent themselves is really common for us as a strategy. And so this is, I think, a good strategy. It's like we're giving it at a time where we know it's going to have um, a, a, an effect, but gives the least amount of potential risk to the birthing parent themselves. 
In this case, the big effect and the significant thing seen in the studies, which I'll put the study in the chat, is the effect on severe disease itself. So it decreased severe disease um, by 81.8, around 82%. And that's, that's a big deal. Um, that, you know, the overall sense of need for hospitalization was, was decreased. The overall significance of does it prevent the disease was not significantly seen. You know, there was uh, a difference of about, depending on how far out you look after delivery, whether it was three months versus six months, you know, severe disease at three months was, deliver, uh, was decreased by 82%. At six months, it was decreased by just over 60%. The overall severe, the actual occurrence of the disease really hovers around that sort of those 50 marks and decreases from there as you go from three months to six months. One of the big challenges is maintaining neonatal um, resistance to this from birth parent kind of transition uh, transmission. And that's been a known effect, but the effect of preventing severe disease is important. Um, as Dr. Grinsky uh, kind of highlights, that handing off that immunity is, in, is a key public health um, uh, and effective measure. It's important to know that back, we talk a lot more about vaccines now in pregnancy than say when I was first trained. We now, we now um, um, offer and recommend four different vaccinations in pregnancy. Um, two of them, are, are all of them being respiratory kind of in nature, being seasonal with um, influenza and now RSV, as well as um, Tdap with pertussis, you know, it's been increasing pertussis um, concerns, and um, uh, and you just overall checking just vaccination status of, with other with other con uh, conditions, like even looking at things like MMR. If somebody is not immune, then we will wait till after they deliver, and then we then we suggest that if they are not immune, that they get MMR. So vaccin vaccination as a strategy to help protect not only the birthing parent, but the, uh, the, the unit of a family unit is incredibly important. Uh, one question that is still out there that I get a lot is about breastfeeding. The most important thing to know here is that breastfeeding in and of itself is protective. Uh, and not protect, it will decrease the uh, significance of um, a severe disease. Um, whether it's both exclusive or even whether it's partial. Um, so partial breastfeeding. So a discussion about breastfeeding is important. We still don't have the numbers yet of those parents who were vaccinated um, with uh, the, the Pfizer vaccine and does it have a increased effect? We just don't know right now. Um, and we're as part of the FDA approval um, was to, for Pfizer themselves to continue to look at any adverse effects, but also highly um, important and reliant on the excellent databases within CDC of the various database and DSAFE to help monitor any adverse events. And so we'll have more information coming out in the next few years. Thank you so much for that excellent overview. Appreciate it. Um, just to, to return to you, what in terms of um, you know pregnant people and the population that you see, what do you foresee the most important challenges this respiratory viral season with influenza and RSV and that you would like to highlight for our audience? The, the highlight is that uh, I think there's no way around the, the concern of the hyper-awareness of that vaccination in general um, has, uh, over the last few years, especially with COVID vaccination, has been present. And so there, we have seen in our studies an overall increase in resistance for, vac for vaccine and vaccinations. Um, and so just being mindful of helping have kind of data on hand 
being able to approach a patient about what their fears or concerns are so that we can encourage um, safe use of vaccines. And so approaching a patient specifically asking like, what are your concerns? What have you heard about these vaccines? Um, what concerns can I address for you? Um, and that takes time. And setting aside uh, standard times during pregnancy to specifically talk about um, the individual vaccine because they're actually timed differently. We give Tdap at 28 weeks starting. We give RSV between 32 and 36 now. You can get flu seasonally whenever and COVID boosters whenever. But setting aside specific time in regiment um, when talking to your pregnant patients to, to address concerns, to help improve, because we as providers are the most key factor on whether a patient will actually uptake and take uh, vaccination itself. Those are excellent points. Dr. Greenkey, the same question uh, for you in the population that you see, biggest challenges that you're experiencing or that you foresee this respiratory viral season? I think it's just the volume. I mean, it's just, it's just the sheer volume. We know in pediatrics, I mean, we know very well how to take care of respiratory children. Um, it's our bread and butter, but, um, you know, when we have, you know, a waiting room with 50 patients and, uh, you know, half of them are red, <laughs> you know, level two triage, you know, it's just difficult. Um, same thing, you know, like I alluded to before, when our ICUs are full and our floors are full, you know, on the, on the, on, on the pediatric side, we're not used to boarding patients in the ED, um, um, even during COVID. Um, and so this isn't, our, our boarding started post COVID and this is a new thing for us. So that takes up real estate. And when you're taking up that real estate, it's hard to uh, work through the, the children that still haven't even been roomed yet. So um, I think volume is, is, is the biggest challenge we're facing. And, 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 and then staffing, I mean, volume and staffing go, go hand in hand. Thank you, excellent points. Dr. Horton, just to return to you as well, I see there's a message came through in the, in the chat here. Um, if a breastfeeding mother gets the RSV vaccine and passes immunity to the infant via breast milk, if she was just delivered and did not get the RSV uh, vaccination between 32 and 26 weeks, can she get the RSV vaccine? It's a very specific scenario question. Sure. Uh, the answer is absolutely they can. Um, preventing, you know, from an approach of a public health standpoint of preventing RSV uh, acquisition themselves, that's how we approach pertussis. You know, by getting uh, by getting the whooping cough vaccine, we decrease the, the birthing parent themselves um, from uh, getting the disease and then handing it off um, to the infant. Um, and so that is a good approach. We don't, so it, it is safe in breastfeeding, um, if that is the specific question. If the question is how much um, protection is handed off to baby, we don't specifically know yet with the, oh, but the highlighting again that breastfeeding, even partial breastfeeding, is still an important factor with improving um, the outcomes of actually all res um, respiratory viruses and severity. Thank you so much for that. Dr. Patel, I did want to bring you back as well. There's um, been a question about the cost of the RSV vaccination and the question of, is this cost very prohibitive in terms of access to the vaccines? Does it promote inequity? Uh, do you have any thoughts or perhaps insight on the costs and, and you know, coverage for, for the new RSV vaccinations? Yeah, I mean, I, it's unfortunate that it's priced so high. And I don't know if you saw the media on um, the price of uh, Nermatrelavir, Ritonavir, or Paxlovid. Uh, I don't have any insight as to whether the cost will go down. I know we will work with CMS to make sure that insured 
uh, patients have coverage. Um, and CDC continues to work with these companies and we do have a lot of conversations when new products are coming to bear, but we don't have a lot of um, input on how things are priced, unfortunately. Understood. Another question that um, has come up as well is, in the future, can we expect to see perhaps home testing for RSV, COVID, and influenza? I know this has come up over the past couple several years, and there initially was a contract with the company that was able to do um, multiviral testing. So, um, Dr. Yecki, do you have any thoughts on this? Right. So certainly during um, the COVID-19 pandemic, the public health emergency, FDA authorized the use of a number of home tests specifically for SARS-CoV-2. Now that we're moving away from the public health emergency, it's a different situation, but FDA did issue uh, an emergency use authorization for a new uh, multiplex molecular assay. Um, not to advertise, but because there's only one, I'll just name the, the, the company, it was uh, made by a company called Lucera. It's now distributed by Pfizer. And this assay is a molecular assay um, that um, can produce results for SARS-CoV-2 and influenza A and B viruses. Um, now, what my comment about home tests, and I'll, I'll say this really specifically for home influenza tests, but I think it applies to home-based SARS-CoV-2 assays as well, is that um, on one hand, it's a good thing um, if it results in, um, in actions that may benefit the individual, and particularly for high-risk individuals or someone living with a high-risk individual, there are interventions that one can do. But really the benefit for someone with influenza is a, a quick diagnosis, but you need to couple that with the availability of a prescription for antiviral treatment for a high-risk person, right? And so the diagnosis alone is one thing, but what we really want to do is facilitate early antiviral treatment for people who are at increased risk of complications of influenza. Um, and so... There is a cost to these uh, to this test, and there will be more home. There are home tests in development. Prior to the emergence of SARS-CoV-2, um, there were many manufacturers that were working on home influenza-based diagnostics. Once SARS-CoV-2 emerged, they all dropped that development and they pivoted, probably appropriately, to uh, SARS-CoV-2 assays. Now they've gone back to developing influenza home-based tests again and multiplex uh, tests. And so I think in the years to come, we will see uh, such uh, tests being available. Um, but I wanna point out a couple things. One, there's a cost to these tests and how useful they will be is unclear because for example, everyone probably on this call in the US, I'll certainly say myself, we were allowed during the COVID-19 pandemic to get free home antigen tests through the mail, courtesy of the taxpayers, US government. But now that's ending, although recently they opened it up again. But for influenza tests, who, how much are people willing to pay? And you are, if you're not gonna be covered by insurance for home-based tests, this will create inherent inequities, disparities, 
between people who can afford or have insurance for those home influenza tests and those do, who do not. And, and, and we know that people who are in lower socioeconomic groups um, typically have higher prevalence of chronic conditions that they may be at much higher risk for influenza complications if the, you know this this creates inherent disparities and I think we need to you know collectively public health and the government really need to think about um, these home-based tests and how they'll be used um, who will get them have access to them but it has to be coupled with early initiation of antiviral treatment or some public health action thanks Thank you so much. And I think we are going to, in the interest of time, leave it at that. That will end our discussion. Thank you so much once again to our panelists and to our audience. Before we do close, I would again just like to pose one more interactive question to our audience after participating in this session. How confident do you now feel about the various medical countermeasures available and the application of them for RSV and influenza? Again, on the scale of not at all confident to completely confident, if you could please vote now. All right, and if we could put the results back up on the screen, please. And it looks like our panelists have done a tremendous job. We have certainly moved into people possessing at least some knowledge and confidence regarding these medical countermeasures. Of course, there are always opportunities for continued learning. So with that, thank you again to everyone. Thank you to our technical team here at the SCDP ECHO, Yasmin Thornton, our Project ECHO Coordinator, Manager, Leader Extraordinaire, our Planning Committee with Sharon Venersdale, Anish Mehta, Allison Claybar, thank you. For feedback and further information, including continuing education credits and the recording, please check the links here and on our website. We look forward to seeing you again soon. Next month, we will have our next ECHO session. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.